and welcome to Dragon Bites Basics, the paediatric podcast aimed at healthcare students or anyone in need of a refresher about common paediatric conditions. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. Each week, medical students will be joining paediatric doctors from Wales to discuss these common paediatric conditions and give them insights into paediatric problems that they may not have faced before. These episodes are just introductions and aren't meant to replace your regular revision. Remember, there will be some regional variations in practice and practice will change as new evidence comes to light. However, this is paediatrics made easy to help students get their head around some new concepts. The host for this week's episode is Swansea University medical student Emily Jenkinson and she's joined by Ms. Carmen Francis, a surgeon who has completed core surgical training and has an interest in paediatric surgery and together they're going to be discussing pyloric stenosis. So let's get started. Welcome to Dragon Bites Basic with me, Emily Jenkinson, a medical student from Swansea Uni. So today we're joined with Miss Carmen Francis, who's just finished core surgical training with a special interest in paed surgery. And she's kindly agreed to talk to us about pyloric stenosis. Hi, Carmen. Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, and you too. So I've been reading recently about pyloric stenosis and was just wondering if we could work for a case just to help with my learning. I've come across that the typical presentation is projectile vomiting. So what actually causes this? So actually the projectile vomiting, um, if you look at the pylorus, which is a structure just after the stomach, and um, and basically the muscles of the pylorus get thickened, and it's called hypertrophy of the muscles, and it causes obstruction, and that is actually what causes this um, forceful projectile vomiting, and that's the clinical presentation that we all know for pyloric stenosis. Yeah, Okay. And is there any other features that we should be aware of when we're looking at? Or is that... Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of other features that you can also see. I mean, projectile vomiting is, is one of the main key features, but you can also have an olive mass, and that's in the right upper quadrant okay. or in midline. Um, and you can also have, you can see the visible peristalsis because there's a blockage in the pylorus. You can see visible peristalsis when the baby does feed. And also another thing that you can do is um, another thing you can do is do a test feed, so you can see the vomiting or um, the visible um, peristalsis after a test feed. Okay, and this is to test the baby with a feed to see if they do have symptoms of pyloric stenosis. Obviously, we actually also when the babies do come in and they usually present around three to six weeks, um, they look. It's called an old grandpa syndrome because their skin is all wrinkled and they're looking very frail. And this is just because of dehydration and obviously poor nutrition because all the milk they're trying to have in, they're throwing up. So, yes, you can call it. And they literally look like an old wrinkled grandpa or grandma. Not being oh, bless them. So, yeah. It's quite an obvious thing to spot then, I suppose, when you are when a baby does present to you. Absolutely. But with all things in... Uh, it, in the neonatal, infantile, and uh, chil- uh, in the children's age range as well, any surgical presentation can uh, can present obscurely. And so I would never say, you know, from pyloric stenosis to appendicitis, never say that this is the only clinical feature. You have to have a broad uh, broad thoughts of what the differential diagnosis could be. And because 
uh, children, as you know, they'll always present atypically, and that's always our. It always catches us out. So. Yeah, keep us on our toes. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so in order to help with your diagnosis, are there any? You said the test feeding. Are there any other investigations you'd do to help? Yeah. So, um, pyloric stenosis is um, is actually a diagnosis. Of, it's a clinical diagnosis, but you can do other investigations as well. Okay. Um, for other investigations are you can obviously start with taking bloods from the baby and um it's commonly a question asked to lots of medical students and junior doctors what is the normal um electrolyte pattern that is seen on a blood gas and so taking a blood gas is very very important um and it will be and it, it's a uh, it's long <laughs> it's a group of long words but it's called hypokalemic hypokaloremic metabolic alkalosis okay? okay and that's showing because you're throwing because when you vomit you throw up hcl so you get the low low potassium low chloride and because you're throwing uh this um hydrogen the hydrochloric acid up you're losing the acid and resulting in metabolic alkalosis so um yeah so that is the normal electrolyte imbalance that you get on a blood gas um so the ph will obviously be in metabolic range okay so um over 7.45 and also sometimes you do get a paradoxical uh aciduria the reason why you get a paradoxical aciduria that means h plus is lost in the urine is because um in the kidneys when you're getting a metabolic alkalosis they're trying it's trying to um it's trying to preserve the uh, h plus ions okay. uh, this basically um you lose the the nephrons are actually trying to convert uh um h plus and hco3 bicarbonate and that's when you're getting h plus ions lost in the uh, urine oh, wow. so, so yeah th- that's um that's a electrolyte imbalance that everyone should know um, for our medical students, junior doctors, if you're presented with a blood gas um, and you can see some metabolic alkalosis, look if there's low potassium, look if there's low uh, chloride and you know it's pyloric stenosis. So yes. Another thing that you can do and it's, it's not always a mainstay is do an ultrasound. Okay. Obviously, as I told you, the pathology of pyloric stenosis is that the pylorus muscles, they're thickened. Okay. So the pylorus has circular and longitudinal muscles and they're thickened. And uh, there is um, there are a few numbers that it'd be good to remember. And if you're surgically minded, please remember them. <laughs> so it's if the, um, so if the normal wall thickness is more than three millimeters, mm-hmm. if the diameter, the total diameter of the pylorus is more than 10 millimeters and uh, the total length is more than 17 millimeters, then you know it's pyloric stenosis because all less than these measurements are normal in a term infant. So yes. Okay. Okay. Brilliant. So now we've got the diagnosis. What would we then go on to do? So once you've got the diagnosis, the first thing to do is fluid replacement, fluid replacement, fluid. Yeah. Replacement. And in each trust, it varies. So I'm not going to give you the um, the. Uh, the consistency of what the bag of fluid should be, but it's usually with saline and dextrose. It's a mix and potassium yeah. in as well. And it's used as, there's a maintenance fluid and f- first as well. Um, and also a, um, you can also do a bolus as well. Okay. And usually it says, it depends how um, alkalotic they are. You can then go on to do blood gases. 
every six or every 12 hours. It depends on the protocol at your local hospital. Okay. So basically for the, you've first, first things first, resuscitation, and then you've got to, you've got to maintain and replace the ongoing losses. So fluid replacement is a mainstay for pyloric stenosis that will save the, uh, that will save the child, the infant more than um, actually go, taking them to surgery. Yeah. Okay. So if you did have to take them to surgery, what would be the procedure you'd have to do? So if you take them to surgery, you can do it laparoscopically or you can do open uh, pyloromyotomy, which means making a... So the basis of both of these surgeries is actually to make a nick in the uh, pylorus muscle and to open it so it's not a stenosed. Um, so you can do that laparoscopically or by open. Um, I've seen both ways and both of them work uh, just as well. Um, obviously, there is the chance of, with any operation, there can be risks, the chance of having a serosal tear and perforation. And you can also, even after a pyloromyotomy, after the patient has uh, been taken to theatre, they can have a reoccurrence or an incomplete pyloromyotomy. So if after the operation, the uh, the baby is still vomiting, that should also be at the forefront. Obviously, it can they can still be vomiting just after post-operative, but it should also uh, it should also be known to true to fact that they could have had an incomplete pyloromyotomy. So yes. Okay, so just keep monitoring them after the surgery. Yes, and I have seen I've seen babies who've had incomplete, but have only you know, the parents or doctors have only realized three weeks afterwards and have come back for another repeat uh, operation. Okay. So I suppose, are there any risk factors for pyloric stenosis? Is there anything? There are risk factors. So there's a male predominance, and I think the ratio is about five to one. So, and also with the male predominance, there's firstborn male as well. So Mm. um, yes, and also siblings um can have 10 percent risk okay. and also um if you have a um history of hirschsprung's disease okay. then that can also predispose you to pyloric stenosis so i think in in especially i'm not sure what the figures are I, there's not robust figures for um third world countries but in, yeah. in the western world it's about two to five in in a in a thousand life births, I'd say. Okay. Oh, so I suppose, have you come across a number of cases? in your? I have. I've come across a number of cases and it's such a good learning. It's such a good learning point because it's something, it's something, um, it's, it's something easy to diagnose in the first instance. And, um, and with fluid recitation, you can see how, how well the babies improve. Yeah. And then surgery corrects the pathology of, the hypertrophied muscles and then you can see uh, how happy the baby is to feed and keep the milk down afterwards so yeah. it's um i have seen many cases of pyrostenosis so it's quite a satisfying fix then once you've done it see how they improve quickly yes very satisfying fix that's always good to know too because uh during that time where they're waiting for the surgery and they're getting fluid replacement they can't have anything to drink orally yeah so it's everything's ivy so obviously baby's crying quite a lot of the time because they're hungry so yeah the operation and when they can feed properly it's relievement for mum and for baby yeah I bet. 
Okay, well, that's brilliant. I think we're coming towards the end of this, I guess. But um, so I suppose just for our listeners and myself, what would you say would be the top tips um, when you're recognising a child with pyloric stenosis and treating them? So I think with the age range of if a baby is coming in very unwell from um, three to six weeks old and um, is not feeding well, is looking very dehydrated, frail, and blood gas is showing that you know, telltale picture of metabolic alkalosis with hyperchloremia and hyperkalemia, then a very, very strong uh, thought should be that it should be pyloric stenosis. If unsure, ultrasound. Yeah. And that can confirm the diagnosis as well. Okay, well, that's brilliant. I think we've all learned quite a lot today. So thank you ever so much for your time. That's okay. Brilliant. Thank you. And I just wanted to say thank you to both Emily and to Carmen for recording that episode for us. Join us again next week for another episode of Dragon Bites Basics.